Uh, good morning. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and I'll be reading from verses uh, 12 through 17. Revelation 2, verse 12 through 17. And it reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan's dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We are in an age when accountability and commitment have been thrown out of the window. People want to be accountable to no one and to be committed to nothing. They want to be their own authority so that they will do whatever they want, whenever they want. They also don't want to commit to anything so that if they want to quit or leave, they can do it anytime. People choose jobs, careers, churches and friends, but fail to be accountable and to commit to any of those. Strangely, even though they show no commitment, they expect others to be committed to them. They have a high level of entitlement. They want job that enriches them financially, churches that serve them spiritually, and friends who help them emotionally. But what they require, they don't give. To make matters worse, this is how they relate to God as well. They don't want to be accountable to God. They are not committed to God, yet they feel entitled to God's provision. They act as if God owes them wealth, health, and a good life. At their soonest inconvenience, they threaten to leave God. Some even tell him how angry they are because he did not show up when they needed him the most. This morning, as we look at the struggling church of Pergamum, I want us to see what it means to follow Jesus. I want us to see that following Jesus is about our faithfulness to him, not a life of ease. 
Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17 will help us see five indisputable facts that the followers of Jesus should accept. One, following Jesus means we are accountable to him. Two, following Jesus is not a means to a life of ease. Three, following Jesus requires bold commitment. Four, following Jesus is incompatible with syncretism. And five, following Jesus brings eternal rewards. Let's look at our first fact. Following Jesus means we are accountable to him. Look at our text, Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In the first century AD, the city of Pergamon was an influential city. It had a famous library that was, second, that was the second largest library in the world at that time. Galen, who is sometimes considered as the father of pharmacy, was from this place. Pergamon was a political, intellectual, and religious center. Although in previous sermons we saw how important Ephesus and Smyrna were in Asia Minor, Pergamon was actually the seat of the Roman governor of the whole region. This city was the Roman capital of Asia Minor. This is where regional decisions were made. Now, in the Roman Empire, the sword was a symbol of justice. It was also used for, as a symbol of judgment. The proconsul living in Pergamon was granted the right of the sword, meaning at his will he had the authority to judge and kill the lawbreakers and to allow those who were just in his eyes to live. Now in verse 12, John writes the message from Jesus to the angel of the church of Pergamon. Look at how Jesus described himself. He calls himself the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The term sharp sword is also used in Revelation 19. There it refers to Jesus judging the nations. Revelation 19 verse 15 to 16 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Revelation 19, we see Jesus in his righteousness exercising his authority by judging the nations that were against him. We see that he succeeded because obviously Jesus is all-powerful. Now, this is the message that Jesus was communicating to the church in Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2. This is the church that was under the jurisdiction of the Roman Empire. But Jesus was reminding them that he was the ultimate authority. Now, this was both comforting and a confronting statement. It was comforting in that the church knew that Jesus was not just the ultimate authority, but he was the perfect savior who cared for his people. Even though a sword was a sign of justice in the Roman Empire, the empire was unjust toward Christians. On the contrary, Jesus was the righteous judge. The Roman Empire was cruel towards Christians, making them pay for wrongs they didn't commit. But Jesus was merciful to them, having paid for the sins they committed. 
the Roman Empire was hostile towards Christians, waiting for them to transgress against their law so that they would persecute them. But Jesus was cordial towards them, ready to forgive all their transgressions. The mighty Roman Empire governing the world at that time had deemed Christians enemies of the state. But Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, possessing eternal reign, had called Christians his beloved. The Roman Empire, having temporal and fleeting power, had threatened Christians with a sword. But Jesus, having everlasting kingdom, had promised Christians protection if they remained faithful to him. So Jesus was reminding Christians that he is the true judge, having all authority over all creation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is what the, the, the Christians struggling in Pergamum needed to hear. This was a call for them to depend upon Jesus. But this was also a warning to those who feared the proconsul of Rome more than Jesus. Since Jesus was the greater and more powerful judge than the proconsul and the Roman Empire as a whole, choosing to fear Rome more than Jesus was a dangerous trap. Anyone who was willing to obey Rome more than Jesus was in danger of greater wrath than he would have imagined. Friends, if we are afraid of upsetting and going against the evil leaders of the world, but not afraid of offending and going against the Almighty God, then we don't really know what it means to be accountable to God. If we'd rather disobey God than be in the bad books of cruel human leaders, then we don't understand the severity of rejecting God's authority. To suffer under the hands of ungodly and unjust men is nothing compared to facing the just God and being judged for exactly what your sin deserves. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse may stand, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Psalm 76, verse 6 to 7. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. First Chronicles 16.25 And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28 Sometimes we make decisions based on our fear of man. Most of the time, we make decisions based on what we want. But in Revelation, Jesus reminds us that he is the one we ought to fear. He is the one we are accountable to. He is the one we ought to consider whenever we make decisions. Evil and ungodly leaders can judge or can judge and condemn us, but one day they will also account to Jesus, the true judge. Therefore, we should never reject Christ, our eternal deliverer, out of fear of those whose authority is temporal. Jesus, not the Roman proconsul. Jesus, not the Roman empire. Jesus, not any modern leader. Jesus, not ourselves. But Jesus alone is the true and righteous judge. We are accountable to him alone. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, as we see here. This is what the church in Pergamon needed to hear, and this is what we need to know. This takes us to our second fact. 
following Jesus is not a means to a life of ease. Let us look at our text. Revelation 2, verse 13a. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now as he did with the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna, Jesus assured the church of Pergamum that he knew about their difficult situation. He acknowledged that their situation was even worse than that of the church of Smyrna. According to him, they lived where Satan's throne was. Now the question is, why Jesus called Pergamum Satan's throne? Now there were a couple of serious religious activities that were happening in Pergamum. Like many in Asia Minor, this city was the city of idolatry. There were a lot of altars, shrines, and temples that were made for the idols in the city. First, there was a magnificent structure made for the Greek idol Zeus. This altar was built on top of the mountain and it was one of the most important altars of the city. In addition to that, Pergamum was the center of the cult of Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of medicine. A huge area of the city was dedicated to Asclepius and the healing art. For that reason, Pergamon became a medical center. People would travel great distances to visit the temple and the bathhouse of Asclepius, hoping to receive healing. This idol, Asclepius, was even called the savior. Now, Asclepius was symbolized with a snake entwined around the rod. The rod. That symbol, together with Caduceus, is still used as the symbol of medicine today. Now, this was indeed the city of idolatry. As if there was not enough, Pergamum added imperial cards to the list of their idolatries. Now, imperial cards was the main reason Jesus called this place Satan's throne. The imperial cult was both the deification and the worship of the imperial. In the eyes of the people, their leaders were no longer humans, but they were divine. So they started building temples to worship the Roman imperials. At first, they worshipped the imperial after death. But starting with Julius Caesar, they began to worship them while they were still alive. Now, in Asia Minor, Pergamum was the first city to build a temple for the emperor, as they built the temple for Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. Now, as time went on, the worship of the emperor evolved and it had political implications. The worship of the emperor became a sign of loyalty to Rome. Those who did not want to worship the emperor like Christians religiously were seen as atheists who did not believe in the God of Rome. And politically, they were seen as traitors who hated Rome and her people. They could not be trusted. For that reason, they were persecuted. They were commanded to deny Christ and to pledge allegiance to Caesar. Those who failed to do that were killed. Now, although this extended to other cities, Pergamum is where all of this began in the region of Asia Minor. This city was Satan's headquarters. Now, beloved, I want you to notice that Jesus did not promise to move them to a better place. 
Jesus' message was not, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, but don't worry, you are coming out. That is the message that every false prophet and every false teacher proclaims these days. Whenever you face suffering, they promise you deliverance and life of ease. But that is not the message Jesus gave to the church of Pergamon. Jesus did not promise them an easy life. Jesus did not promise them an easy way out. He only assured them that he knew what they were going through. What they were going through was not a surprise to Jesus. It was not even a sign that Christianity was losing a battle. In fact, we will see in the next few minutes that they were actually winning the battle. For the church of Pergamum, this was the cost of following Jesus. While people think following Jesus will make their life easy, time and again the scripture shows that that is not the case. As we saw last time at the church of Smyrna, Jesus said things are going to get worse. Now to the church of Pergamum, he acknowledged their difficult situation but made no promise of immediate deliverance. The message is clear. Following Jesus is not a means to a life of ease. Instead, some cost comes with it. In Luke 14, 28-32, Jesus said, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In this passage, Jesus was calling his followers to renounce every earthly position that might hinder them from a complete surrender. He was simply saying, love me more than everyone and more than everything. Christianity is not about shouting nice phrases like, I'm ahead and not the tail, I'm above and not beneath. beneath." Christianity is about faithfulness to God amid life uncertainties. So to the church of Pergamum, Jesus was saying, be faithful to me even though your dwelling place is Satan's throne. This leads us to the third undeniable fact. Following Jesus requires bold commitment. Let us look at our text. Revelation 2, verse 13b. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now in this part, we see Jesus commending the church of Pergamum for her her faithfulness. He commends the church of Pergamum for their unwavering faith. He commends the church of Pergamum for for their steadfastness. He commends the church of Pergamum for their unswerving commitment. He says, you hold fast my name. The word hold fast is the word used for someone who grasps something with no intention of letting it go. The same way soldiers would seize someone to arrest them. 
That is exactly how the church in Pergamon was holding on to Christ. They had no intention of forsaking him and they had no conditions set for him. In weakness and in sickness, in persecution and in execution, Christ was their rock and Christ was their Lord. They did not only hold fast to Christ, but they also did not deny him. Jesus shows there was a situation that could have tempted them to deny him. The man named Antipas, who was one of them, was killed because of his commitment to Christ. Many scholars believe this man might have been a pastor of this church. Whether it is the case or not, one thing is clear, Christ esteemed him high. He called him his faithful witness. This man was a great example of holding fast to the name of Jesus Christ. About 15 years ago, in Aselo Mittal, a steel producing company in KZN, there was a fatal incident. About three employees were coerced to enter a furnace without air respirators. In a few minutes, they were killed by nitrogen gas. Two more people went in trying to help them, but they suffered asphyxiation as well. So one of them died since they also did not have air respirators. In total, four people died in that furnace, and one of them survived after being hospitalized for a few months. A few months later, the company decided to introduce a short course to teach people how to deal with situations like that. The title of the course was The Dead Hero. That course was teaching employees that they should not be dead heroes. They were trying to show people that if they don't have protective equipment or if they are not skilled in that area, they must not try to help someone because they will become dead heroes. One example of that is no matter how aged it is, if you can't swim, you can't try to help someone who is drowning, otherwise you'll just die with that person. Now it was a good cause. There were a few important things to learn from that cause. However, it was self-centered in that the only thing that mattered in that cause, it was oneself. It was a me, myself, and I type of a cause. A conclusion one could draw from attending that cause would be, my life is more important than anything else in this world, so I will not sacrifice it for anything that will make me a dead hero. Now, even though the title, The Dead Hero, sounded like a way to honor the one who sacrificed his life, in that cause, it meant the opposite. It meant someone who failed to think. Now, according to that cause, Antipas, whom Jesus was talking about here, would have been a dead hero. The church of Pergamum would have been warned not to follow the path of Antipas, lest they become dead heroes. They would have been told to forget about honoring Christ at that moment. The advice would be, deny Christ and you will be saved. Your life is what matters at this moment. You can testify about Christ later when your life is not in danger. That is exactly how people feel when their lives are in danger. However, in our passage, Jesus commends the church for their commitment. One of them had already lost his life, but they were still steadfast. Friends, that is the commitment believers should have. We should be ready to be mocked. We should be ready to be persecuted. We should be ready to become dead heroes for the sake of Christ. 
The question is, are we that committed to Christ? Maybe we are a God-knows-by-heart generation with no fruits to support our claim. Maybe our commitment to Christ is not seen by anyone, yet we claim we love him with all our hearts. These days, someone who is not willing to fight sin will tell you, God knows my heart. Someone who is not committed to the church will tell you, God knows my heart. Someone who is not striving to grow in knowledge and in godliness will tell you, God knows my heart. Someone who can literally and verbally deny Christ when facing danger will tell you, God knows my heart. These days, churches cannot correct, rebuke, or discipline anyone because it is only God who knows their heart. Friends, this morning I invite you to look at the church of Pergamon. Though their hearts were indiscernible, but their commitment was observable. Beloved, it is true that only God knows your heart, but it is also true that his people should see your commitment to him. What does your family think about your commitment to Christ? Can your friends attest that you do not compromise when it comes to your Christian faith? Looking at your conduct, can your colleagues and classmates affirm that you live like a Christian or they'll be surprised when they hear that you are a Christian? Maybe you have not denied Christ with your conduct or with your mouth, but can we say the same about your conduct? In Hebrews 11, we see many people who were committed to Christ. This world was not appealing to them. They never saw it as home. Instead, they called themselves strangers or exiles in this world. They were not attached to this world. They were prepared to suffer for the sake of their faith. Suffering did not cause them to sacrifice their faith. Talking about those people, Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Friends, this is a great testimony. Because of their commitment, they bore the name of God. He was not ashamed to be called their God. He introduced himself as God of Abraham, as God of Isaac, and many others. It has always been those who are committed to God who bore the name of God. Now, believers, or, or brethren, we are Christians. We bear the name of Christ, our Lord. We are his ambassadors. Therefore, we ought to be committed to him just like these saints and the church in Pergamon. And if we are committed to him, nothing else will take his place in our lives. And this leads us to our fourth indisputable fact. Following Jesus is incompatible with syncretism. Let us look at our text, Revelation 2, verse 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. After commending the church for its great commitment, Jesus warned the church about its dangerous errors. 
Like in other letters, Jesus did not say, let us focus on the positive and forget about the negatives. Instead, he addressed their issue. Because faithfulness in one part does not excuse error in other parts. Some in the church were following in the footsteps of a corrupt teacher, Balaam. Balaam was a Gentile prophet who practiced divination. His story is found in the book of Numbers. It happened at the time when the children of Israel were on their way to the land of promise. In Numbers 22, Balak, the king of Moab, was terrified by the people of Israel because they were many and they had already destroyed other nations as they were moving towards the land of promise. The Israelites were camping in the plains of Moab and Balak wanted to get rid of them. Seeing that he could not fight with them, he sent his messengers to hire the prophet Balaam to curse them. This is the Balaam that the book of Revelation warns against. At first, he seemed like a true prophet. After hearing from God, he told the messengers he could not go with them to Balak, their king. However, Balak increased the fees and sent more honorable men. So when they went back to Balaam, Balaam began to show signs of unfaithfulness and hypocrisy. When the messengers came and begged him to go with them, look at how he responded. Numbers 22, verse 18 to 19. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Now, there is a contradiction in this verse. In verse 18, Balaam pretended to be faithful as he claimed he would not go beyond God's command even if there were great benefits. However, from verse 19, we see his unfaithfulness in that he went back to God hoping he would change his mind even though God had already told him not to go with Balaam. Even his donkey showed him he was not supposed to go, but Balaam's heart was already in what Balak had promised him. In chapter 23, Balak persuaded Balaam to curse the Israelites. Even though God had told Balaam long before he went to Balak that he could not curse the Israelites, Balak, or Balaam told Balak to build altars, and they sacrificed on those altars as Balaam was waiting to hear from God. God made it clear again that he was not going to curse the people that he has blessed. Balaam ignored that message again, and he built other altars, hoping again that God would change his mind. It is at that time that we see one of the famous verses that are used when we talk about the immutability of God. In Numbers 23, 19, having received this message from God, Balaam with his own mouth said, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. The message was clear. God had blessed Israel and he was taking them to the land of promise. He was not going to change his mind. He had promised them and he was going to fulfill his promise. You would think, finally, Balaam understood. Well, he didn't. 
As long as Balak was still persuading him, he was trying again and again, hoping that God would change his mind, even though God kept on giving him the same response. That is how the story ends in Numbers 24. However, in Numbers 31, we see that Balaam did not let the issue slide. Instead, he advised the women of Moab to seduce men of Israelites. The Israelites ended up committing sexual immorality and they were also led to syncretism as they added idols to their worship. This is how dangerous Balaam was. He knew God's word. He knew God's truth. He spoke God's truth, but he was willing to compromise it at any given moment. So in our text, Jesus said there were some in Pergamum who were following the teaching of Balaam. Although they did not deny Christ, they were willing to be involved in worship of idols for gain. They wanted to avoid suffering and persecution, so they decided to add idols in their worship of Christ. The worship of idols was so heinous that it included sexual immorality since the pagans had temple prostitutes. The teaching of Balaam and that of Nicolaitans were both leading people to idolatry and sexual immorality. Sadly, some in the church of Pergamum were embracing it. They thought because they had not denied Christ, it was okay. Friends, this is the danger of syncretism. This is the danger of matching Christ with our idols. It makes you think you are safe just because you haven't denied him. But friends, syncretism is the very denial of Christ. In African context, syncretism has caused many to believe that ancestors work together with Christ when in fact they don't. Syncretism is the greatest lie that pretends as if it brings extra help, yet it hides its true nature. Syncretism says Christ is not enough, so I will boast him by adding ancestors. Syncretism says Christ can protect me from the wrath of God, but he's not powerful enough to protect me from my family's bad luck or from generational curses, so I will add ancestors to that. Syncretism says Christ can take care of my eternity, but he cannot take care of me now. So for that, I might have to appease my ancestors. That is how syncretism has always operated. One man commenting on this verse said, A large part of the problem was the expectation in the ancient world that people would participate in idol worship as a normal part of society. In the eyes of the people, it was a normal thing for anyone living in the Roman Empire to participate in idol worship. People had no problem with serving Christ as long as they didn't have to renounce their idols. Now this is what following the teaching of Balaam looks like. Does this sound familiar? Oh, most definitely. It is a very normal thing for an African to engage in ancestral worship while claiming to follow Christ. But friends, we are not called to do what is normal. We are called to glorify God. We can't truly follow Christ without abandoning ancestral worship and every idol that masquerades as a harmless tradition. 
In our passage, Jesus shows us that he is against syncretism. In fact, those who engage in syncretism are at war with him. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. As we saw earlier, the reason some people in the church decided to embrace idols was to be safe as they were going to avoid persecutions. But Jesus here says, no, you won't be safe. Instead, if you do not repent, you will have to face me. Brothers and sisters, the reason people embrace both Christianity and ancestral worship is they want to be blessed by both. They want to benefit from both. They want to have two options. They, they want to be protected by both and they want to be protected from both. They want to have plan A and plan B. If one fails, the other one takes over. If one is angry and cannot provide, they ask the other one. The best case scenario is that they work together as a tech team and then people become untouchable. Jesus says no. It doesn't work that way. Jesus and idols are not a tech team. There is no place for ancestral worship or any idol in the life of the believer and in the church of Jesus Christ. If you are embracing anything else other than Christ, you are at war with Christ. If you are embracing something else in addition to Christ, you are at war with Christ. If you are holding to the exclusive, or if you are not holding to the exclusivity of Christ, you are at war with Christ. Repent, therefore, and let Christ be your only Lord. This leads us to our last undeniable fact. Following Jesus brings eternal rewards. Let us look at our text, Revelation 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, like in other letters in Revelation, Jesus ends his message by promising victory. No matter how much the church is struggling, Jesus assures them they will be victorious in the end. Those who persevere, those who are committed to Christ, those who are faithful to Christ, those who are committed, those who embrace the exclusivity of Christ till the end will receive the rewards. Those who dwelt where Satan's throne was will one day stand where God's throne is. In verse 16, Jesus called those who were feasting in pagan's temple to repentance. In verse 17, he shows them that there is a better feast for those who persevere and conquer as his followers. He promised them hidden man. Now, there are different views regarding the white stone that Jesus talks about in verse 17. But there is one piece I found interesting when I was looking at the history of Rome. It reads, Romans awarded athletes white stones as symbols of victory and admission to special events. According to ancient Roman custom, when a competing athlete won a momentous victory, he was given a laurel about his head and a white stone that assured him financial benefits for the rest of his life. 
If his funds were low, he could come before the treasury of Rome, and upon presentation of his white stone, he could then reach into the coffers with both hands at certain designated time and take valuable gems or precious metals. Beloved, I wouldn't positively say this is what Jesus was thinking about when he wrote this passage. However, like the athletes in Rome, we have great rewards and benefits. The victorious athlete had benefit for the rest of his life. Now those who persevere in Christ have something better. They have eternal benefits. They have eternal rewards. The message is clear. If the evil Roman Empire rewarded its treasured athlete like this, how much more will the righteous God reward his beloved who remains faithful until the end? Beloved, our walk with Christ is not meaningless. Our commitment to Christ is not futile. And our suffering in this world is not a checkmate. Jesus promises victory. Jesus assures us of victory. But as you see here, victory is not promised to everyone, but to those who conquer. That victory is not promised to all those who suffer in general, but only to those who follow Jesus. Our message is not that one day everything will be all right. Our message is one day Jesus will make all things all right for his people. We are so sure of a better future because the one who promised us is the one who holds the future. We are full of hope because Jesus is our living hope. We are looking forward to eternal life because the one who is eternal has promised us eternal victory. Rome promised protection to her people, but she could not promise them eternal victory because that is only found in Christ Jesus. Beloved, in this world there are wars, there are struggles, there is suffering, but Christ has promised eternal victory to those who follow him till the end. I will end with the words of A.W. Pink. Afflictions are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the suffering of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their real lightness is best seen by comparing them with the weight of glory which is awaiting us. Glorious Father, we are so thankful that you are our Father. We are so thankful, Lord, that we can always look to you. Lord, we do pray that you may help us, O oh Lord, that we may be believers who are committed to you, that, Lord, we may acknowledge that we are accountable to you and you alone. Father, amid life uncertainties, help us that we may hold on to Christ with no intention of letting him go. Lord, it is a joy to know that even as we are holding to Christ, it is only because he is holding to us. Therefore, Lord, we have no fear of losing him. Help us to be faithful in our conduct. Help us, O oh Lord, that we may strive to know you better and to be godly in everything that we do. Lord, we pray that in our lives you may be glorified always. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.